In September 2012, the Australian newspaper published what any parent would find a heart-wrenching article. Will Matheson, the infant son of the Australian's editor, Clive, and his wife Miranda, was born with transposition of the great arteries. Within hours of his birth, his unsuspecting family watched while their tiny man embarked on an ordeal few of us will ever be confronted with. Clive Matheson chronicled his son's extraordinary ordeal as he faced complicated and invasive cardiothoracic surgery, flagging nutrition, prolonged intensive care and even a stroke, before finally improving and eventually going home. Baby Will may have little recollection of his first six weeks of life, but the trauma of that experience will leave indelible scars on his family. Will's father, Clive Matheson, joins me on today's podcast. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Clive. Thanks very much. Clive, Will was only a matter of hours old when you were first told that he was unwell. What are your recollections about that time and the first realisation that he was unwell? Look, it was, as you'd expect, it was a a hell of a shock, to be honest. Um, We we had two other children um, who had been, you know, there was a few complications with the first, but um, pretty much we thought we were just going through the motions with Will. Um, You know, my wife was having a a third caesarean. We knew the procedure. We knew the doctors. We knew the hospital. We knew how it was meant to happen. Uh, Will was born. Um, You know, looking back on it now, um, he was a blue baby. Um, But uh, at the time, you know, the doctors and nurses were explaining he's probably just got some fluid on the lungs. We'll encourage him to cough. Um, And then he was bundled off down to uh, the nursery. Um, but again, our other two children have been quite small and they've been sent to the nursery as well. So it really didn't seem out of the ordinary to us at all, um, to the point where I, I left Will and went and made sure my wife Miranda um, was settled into her room and then I went back down and that's when the cardiologist um, was standing over the bed. <clears throat> Obviously, when you see a cardiologist there, you think something's not quite right. Um, and uh, he was pretty upfront. He just said, look, we've got a major problem. I need to do some more tests. I'll come and talk to you in a minute. Um, and then, you know, took me off to a side room and sat me down and explained that it was transposition of the great arteries um, and what that meant. And, you know, and, and I've written about this once before, but he just used this phrase that will always stick in my mind. He said, it's not compatible with life, um, which is a great euphemism for, you know, without treatment, um, the, you know, will, William will die. And that was the first that you'd heard that, or had even suspected that anything was wrong? Yeah, that was the first. <clears throat> um, what I've subsequently learned is that um, TGA can be picked up by the ultrasound, either, I think it's the 20-week ultrasound. Um, and I think looking back again on some of the scans, it was pretty obvious to the cardiologist that, you know, that, that the blood was going the wrong way through the heart. Um, <clears throat> so it should have been picked up. Um, we're... My wife and I are pretty philosophical about that. Um, you know, if it had been picked up at 20 weeks, we would have had 20 weeks of panic and worry. There's nothing we could have done um, <clears throat> except be prepared for the, exactly the same process to take place after, after birth. So, you know, we find out on the day it's a hell of a shock. You've got to deal with it. But, you know, we would have been gone through the same shock with the baby still in the womb and just had this 20 weeks of terrible worry about it. So um, oh, I think if you could have your time over again, I think we'd probably have it the way we did. Will was obviously diagnosed with transposition and you were told that his life was threatened and that he would need surgery. That must have been an enormous amount of information for you to take in at the time. Yeah, um, 
It, it was because I, I think too, Christoph, a cardiologist, sort of explained it to me, and he drew me a diagram, and he, he sort of explained, you know, what has to happen and, and how, you know, what the operation will involve, and you know, it's um, you're trying to take it in. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the word, you know, major open heart surgery um, is not something you want to hear when your baby's a couple of hours old. So you're trying to take it in, you're trying to remember the phrases that, you know, the you know, even just the words, um, you know, arterial tra arterial switch. Um, and then I had to go and explain it to Miranda, um, who obviously, because she was recovering from the Caesar, wasn't, you know, wasn't there for the explanation. So I had to sort of sit down and try and go through it again and try and, you know, make it as accurate as possible. Um, and, you know, with all the emotion that comes with that, you know, it's, um, it is a hard thing to take in. Um, and, you know, I didn't write anything down at that time. I remember walking away with a little diagram with red and blue blood on it. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it, it comes at you at a bit of a rush. There must have been an awful clash of emotions for you with the excitement of the birth of your third child with this terrible news and then the confusion of what must be about to happen. That, that must have been a, a very confusing time for you. Yeah, um, I think a little bit about my wife and I. We, we, we're kind of practical people. Um, I think, you know, there wasn't... And I can honestly say this through the whole process. There wasn't a lot of why us, you know, you know, glorious, you know, sort of this joyous moment's been ruined. Um, it was just these are the facts, you know, we will deal with it. You know, there's not – the best thing about what happened to Will is that it was, it was fairly linear. There wasn't a lot of choices along the way. If you didn't make this one choice – then Will would die. If you, you know, if we didn't have the surgery, there was no other option. It, it's not, you're not sitting around throwing it. There's a lot of confusion about what to do. Um, it's just actually dealing with what has to be done. Um, so, in that way, yeah, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the kind of day you want. And you know, trying to tell family members is is incredibly difficult. You know, because everyone's so excited. And you know, the initial tweets went out. Not tweets. The initial text messages went out saying, you know, William Murphy Matheson born. You know, mother and baby doing well. And then there's a blackout for the family for you know sort of six hours while we process this news. And then I have to start ringing around saying. Look, it's great, and Will seems fine. However, in six days, we're going to put him on an operating table and, and repair his heart. So, you know, th there are a lot of emotions in that in that first day. But um, I think we were quite matter of fact about what needed to be done. In your story, you refer to the moment that you had to trust Will's care to an anaesthetist, and the the powerful emotions that you had about giving up care for him for that period of time. Can you tell me what that was like? Yeah, it was our it was our biggest fear. Um, you know, we, we had Will for six days um, before the surgery, and, and obviously that's to try and get him feeding, fatten him up as much as we can. Um, and he had you know a little um, uh, little hole torn in torn in his heart just to keep the blood flow going. You know, just so they could prepare him for the surgery. And you kind of having had two babies, we, we you know we got to know our baby in those six days. Um, you know, he was a very gentle soul. Um, you know, one of my other children was a real scrapper and a fighter, and, and, and Will wasn't like that. So you, you know, and he looked into your eyes, and we got to bathe him, and we got to feed him, and you know, just the great fear handing him over to the anaesthetist and to the surgeons who were going to do this this very long complicated and dangerous surgery was that we wouldn't 
not that we wouldn't get Will back full stop, but that we wouldn't get that baby that we'd known back, um, if that makes sense. You know, we, we just we, we love the little baby that we had at six days old, and we wanted to make sure we got the same one back. Um, and, you know, we hadn't been through anything like this with our other children, um, you know, where potentially their lives are at risk. Um, so, yeah, the anaesthetist comes in and out of our story quite a bit, um, and John Awad, and, and we did get to know him quite well, um, and it felt comfortable giving the baby to John, but then you do turn away and you know, you know what's going to happen then. He's going to be anaesthetised, he's going to be put on the table, his chest is going to be opened, they're going to put him on a bypass machine, you know, they're going to do this incredibly complicated surgery on the arteries, uh, you know, and around his heart. Um, and then hopefully reverse that or bring him back, bring him off the bypass, close the, close the chest, you know, and, and deliver this baby back. So, you know, it, 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 is a, it is a very tough thing to sort of turn away and, and leave him there, um, <clears throat> you know, knowing what he's about to go through and knowing that, you know, while the odds are heavily stacked in your favour, it is not simple surgery by any stretch of the imagination. A couple of times in, in the paper you, ref, you made reference to the investment of trust in the health system that's required for families. Um, did you find that personally difficult to do? Actually, no. Um, I, I think we're in very, very good hospitals. I mean, you're at the, you know, the Royal Hospital for Women and the Sydney Children's. You know, um, they are, you know, leading hospitals in, in both their, <clears throat> both their fields. So I think we always felt we had the best care on tap and around us. And, and whether it was the cardiologist, the surgeon, the anaesthetist, even our obstetrician, you know, that we had. We had people around us who it just sort of exuded trust, um, you know, and the intensivists as well. Like it just, and look, I'm, I'm not a medical person, you know, who am I to question the wisdom of these people who do it for a living? And you know that they're only interested in one thing, and that is getting your baby well. Now, anyone who has that same mission that you do has got to be on your side. Um, so I. My wife and I didn't find it difficult, and that's not to say we didn't have awkward moments, you know, sort of along the you know the coming six weeks. But you know, I, I think they made it very easy for us to trust them. Um, you know, and at no point did I think we were getting. I'll come to a point, but at very few points did did I ever feel we were getting getting second rate care, or that we weren't getting the advice um, and the information that we needed. Will obviously went, um, went to theatre and had cardiac surgery when he was about a week old. In your article, um, the, the tension that you describe while you're waiting for, for news of Will's progress was, was almost palpable. Um, and you obviously had uh, relatively little information forthcoming at that time. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was probably one of the one of the harder moments. Um, yeah, we were told that the operation would be, you know, somewhere between five six hours, something something like that. Um, the advice, which was very good advice, was get out of the hospital, don't sit around, you know, you'll, you'll chew your fingernails down to the quick, you know, just just get out, get some air, come back a bit later. So. We did, um, you know, Royal Hospital for Women. You know, we went down to Bondi, had a bit of breakfast, wandered around on the beach, sat, tried not to think about it, and then we came back to the hospital. You know, sort of around lunchtime, so about sort of four hours into the surgery. Now, whether there was 
miscommunication. I mean, the operation itself might have been, you know, five, six hours, but there's a, there was a lot of prep. You know, there's a lot of an hour and a half of before they start the surgery, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of um, waiting at the end to make sure there are no complications or anything like that. So I think the whole period they're in theatre may have been longer. I've never really explored that with a hospital. Um, but also... You know, by the time we got to five or six hours and we dropped them off at about eight in the morning, you know, by the time we got to, you know, one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon, we were expecting a call any minute. And then, you know, we got to three and we're saying, don't panic, it's all right. And then we got to four and we finally kind of cracked and, you know, sort of rang, you know, the, the, the nurse who'd been looking after us and said, look, can you, can you find out what's going on? And obviously we don't want her to march in and say, parents are demanding their baby, what's going on? Um, but to actually just find out if there'd been complications and your mind is going to the darkest places possible your mind is going to he's dead on the table we're not getting our son back um you know your mind just does that it it doesn't go everything will be fine don't worry about it you know they're probably having a cup of tea and he's you know been sent back up to you know the icu and they forgot to tell you um but you know and then it came back there was an issue with bleeding and that's the only information they could get um and you know, I think we made one other phone call, but by the time it got to sort of 6, 6.30, we were, you know, pretty ragged. Um, and uh, we got the call, uh, and then, you know, we went down to see him. Now, you know, I don't know how much communication you can expect in a situation like that. You know, the, 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 the doctors and nurses who are working on Will do not need to be distracted by worry parents. You know, they just need to do, the, you know, their job, which is to, you know, to fix him and, you know, bring him through the other side. So, you know, I don't... You know, not, there's no blame attached to any of that. It was just a very, very difficult time for both of us. After 11 hours of surgery, Will returned to ICU fairly unwell, didn't he? And he was he was physically traumatised, I guess, and unable to be held or even fed. Um, that must have been a fairly confronting and, and sometimes terrifying first interface with intensive care, I'd imagine. Yeah, the um, something that really helped us was before the surgery <clears throat> um the one of the nurses who was you know attached to the um the cardiac unit showed us pictures of another baby um and what they look like post surgery um you know so they showed you know with um you know 11 or 15, you know 11 12 13 sort of tubes and catheters and you know pacing wires and you know vent, you know ventilated and and you know intubated and they showed the you know the, a picture of what Will would look like when it came out. So actually seeing him like that wasn't too much of a shock. They explained that the chest would be open um, and that, you know, would, underneath the little bit of Gore-Tex they had there, you'd see the heart beating. So, again, you're prepared for that. Um, but, I mean, he was unrecognisable from the baby that that we said that we'd seen 11 hours earlier. I mean, he was, <clears throat> you know... A, a small little baby you could just hold in your arms and, you know, he came out and he was grossly swollen and obviously, you know, covered in, you know, there was blood and tubes and, you know, catheters. And it, it's 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 very, very confronting. And, and you don't sort of take a lot of notice of, you know, the doctor's trying to explain, you know, sort of why the surgery had taken longer than it should. And at the whole time, you're just looking at Will going, you know, we know babies are resilient, we know they recover well, but, you know, how how, how does that that we can see on the table that, you know, very traumatised baby, how, how do we get him back to the shape that he was in? So it was, um, yeah, and that first night in the ICU, um, again, with the incredible care from the intensivists, just constant, you know, fussing and fidgeting and monitoring and <clears throat> dialling up and dialling down and, 
you know, and they to, you know, told you, you know, the first 24 hours, first 48 hours are the most dangerous and, you know, just, you know, that, that level of professionalism kind of gives you some comfort that no one is going to turn their back on your baby, um, you know, when, you know, when he's in such a, a, a perilous position. So, look, very... You don't take the ICU in. We hadn't been into the ICU. I had never been into one, I don't think, um, certainly not in my adult life. Um, so didn't take a lot in that first night. Um, but, uh, you know, all your attention is just on, just on Will. And Will spent the next three weeks, I believe, in intensive care with, at some, some stages, was quite a complicated course. Um, I would imagine that you would have come to know some of the other families in the unit of, or of patients in the unit during that time. And I'm wondering how supportive uh, you were of each other. Was there any interaction between the different families? Um, that's, yeah, that's um, it's one of those things that did surprise me a little bit. Um, not much, to be honest. I think everyone is in their own private pain or, or, or private world you don't you can't presume we didn't this is just how we reacted we, we couldn't presume to know what other parents were going through like you know you can see there the child is unconscious or conscious or you know you get an idea of but through talking to the docs and nurses you know it's a it's a stomach operation or you know he's waiting for a lung or you know there's another chylothorax or so you, you pick up a little bit but you don't know where they are on their journey you know you, you can't they might look happy one day, devastated the next, you know, and they, again, don't know what's going on with, with our baby. I mean, they probably pick up little bits around as well, but there was not, there was, a, you know, a nod and a wave and occasional conversation, you know, how's little Tara going or, you know, there was a, there was a little bit, but I, I think you're just coming and going a lot. And, and honestly, my wife spent a lot more time in the hospital sitting with Will, and I think she did interact a bit more. She knew some of the other stories better than I did. But you do tend to keep a little bit to yourself and, and just sort of put your energy into, you know, in, into your child. Um, that's certainly how I, I found it. Um, and you, I, I sort of found myself in a position to where I, I wasn't sort of comfortable asking because you don't know what answer you're going to get. You know, uh, you know there was... You know, children who'd been in there for 18 months, um, and you know, we were there for just three weeks. And you know, how would they feel seeing our baby come in and then leave again? You know, knowing that they have probably got an indefinite stay. Um, so there's, there's, yeah, there's. <clears throat> again, I just you didn't presume to know what other people are going through, and 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 you know, unless they obviously made it clear that they were happy to talk about it, and some people are, then you know, you didn't you didn't sort of make an issue with them. Clive, do you recall what the prevailing emotions that you and your wife were going through at that time? Was there a sense of helplessness or grief for the for the loss of of that happy period after the baby was born? What what were the major feelings that you had during that time? Yeah, I mean, back to that, <clears throat> we were very matter of fact about it. Um, we just dealt with each hurdle as it came up, and it, it, it changed with Will as well. I mean. There was a few days where Will was getting better, and, and then it just it just cascaded, and it was just you know sort of one, uh, in the words of the intensivists, one um, disappointment after another. Like you know, first he developed chylothorax, uh, which is fluid in the lung cavity on one side, then he developed it on the other side, um, you know, and then we thought we could you know we were dealing with that problem as well as just recovering from the heart surgery. Um, then he uh, started to have seizures, um, and uh, we realised that he'd, he had a, a, a stroke, 
Um, and then we were just dealing with that. And then I remember going out with my wife. We, you know, while well, we waited for some results to come back from that, and we went out just grab a bite to eat in Randwick. And I remember saying to her, look, it's all been bad luck. Will's luck's about to turn. You know, he's a fighter. We'll be completely fine. And then coming back to the hospital and being told that he had a, a clot in the brain, um, you know, quite a large one in the, in the veins on the top of the skull that, that drained the brain. And, you know, and that was probably the most life-threatening thing that he had. And, and that is, um, you know, the, 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 the odds go down considerably with something like that. And that is when that fear that I talked about that we wouldn't get our little boy back, that's when that, you know, sort of came to came to pass. You know, all of a sudden we're talking about a, a stroke baby, you know, there's bound to be some, you know, lingering, you know, physical or cognitive, you know, problems with that. Um, the stroke, you know, which is clearly potentially fatal, um, you know, that, that it was at that point, while he's still dealing with you know, the recovery from the heart surgery and he's still got the colothorax, that they were the dark times. That's when... You know, that, that is certainly when, you know, emotionally, you know, that was hard to, to keep going. There was, you know, there was not a lot of bright spots and there was a lot of worried faces around us, um, you know, including from the experts. So, you know, you do, your emotions do go up and down. Um, but overall, you know, and there were tears along the way, but it's just right, let's deal with today. You know, there's nothing more we can do. We're not experts. Let's just deal with today, you know, give Will as much love as we can and just, hope we keep heading in the right direction. As a parent, there was one point that I found very difficult in, in your story to read where you described the point where you, that you got to where you might have considered that Will was better off if he didn't survive. Can you tell me what that experience must have been like? Yeah, that was probably when he was at his worst. Um, you know, he... He, he could still, he was conscious, um, obviously, out of his mind on, on morphine um, and, and other drugs, but he was, he was conscious and, he, and he, he could look at you um, and seemed to be out of focus and didn't display any of the symptoms of a baby that had had a stroke, but you could just see day after day after day he was getting weaker and weaker and weaker because one of the things they do to deal with colothorax is they put you on um, I think it's called TPV um, or TPN, um, whatever it is um, which is basically just the building blocks, essential you know, sort of um, nutrition um, <clears throat> so he's not getting any mother's milk, he's not getting any formula and you could just see his skin was becoming paper thin um, I, I remember <clears throat> writing that you know, the stitches that were holding his rib cage together um, popped through the skin um, and they started to become infected um, he was getting bed sores um, you know, and the colothorax was still pouring out, it, it was showing no signs of slowing and and I think we were thinking, if he had one of these problems, he'd be all right. If he had two, then you know maybe he could he could keep fighting. But everything was just piling up on top of itself, and it, it was just heading in one direction. Yeah, his lungs kept filling with fluid, and they'd have to um, you know sort of suckle the mucus out of his lungs every you know sort of literally 20, 30 minutes, and that was a terrible thing to watch because he'd cough and fight it and. You know, it was, just, it, was, it, was, it was awful to watch. And, um, you know, and I, again, your mind goes to fairly dark places. And I, I particularly start to wonder, you know, what baby we were going to get back, um, if we were going to get him back at all. Um, you know, was it worth continuing to put him through, you know, the obvious pain and agony that he was going through? Um, 
you know, would there be nothing more we could do? Um, and there seemed to be nothing we could do. You know, the, the, the intensivists had, were getting close to running it out of ideas, um, you know, as to how, as to how, how to turn things around. Um, and yeah, and I started to think about how that would affect his two sisters, um, you know, who were at the time were you know, sort of four and two, or almost five and three, and 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 how it would be explained to them, and how his mother would cope, um, you know. And again, this is you know we got to know a baby for six days, and we hadn't met him again for another three weeks. So, yeah, it was a. I think it was just a matter of me preparing myself for perhaps what I thought at the time was inevitable. Um, you know, give. If you set yourself up for bad news, you won't be disappointed when it comes. Uh, maybe that was my way of dealing with it. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was it, that was probably the most, oh, it was certainly the most difficult time for us. You mentioned Will's sisters there, and, and obviously they have, for them, a normal life that's going on outside this environment. And you must have also been uh, finding it very difficult to to support them. Um, what was it like for them, and how did you deal with them during that time? They, um, they're sort of they're young enough to, know, to not know the process, you know, that happens when a baby's born. So for them, it was almost, it, you know, I, my oldest daughter couldn't remember when, you know, her sister came home. <clears throat> so she didn't, you know, sort of realise that, you know, you're supposed to have a baby, stay for a couple of days, and then come home. So that wasn't a shock to them that Will hadn't come home immediately. Um, and we, we explained to them eventually, and we brought him in, brought them in to see Will, but we didn't want them to see Will intubated, covered in bandages, chest open. We didn't want to see Will at his worst. Um, but, you know, we explained that Will had had a problem with his heart. He was going to stay in hospital for a little while. Um, and then when, you know, Will did get some of the bandages off when the tube, when the ventilators came out and things like that, then we certainly brought the girls in to see him. Um, and, and we had brought the girls in before the operation to, to meet him. Um, we, we were lucky. We had a series of um, we're, we're both from Adelaide. Had a series of sisters and mums and friends who came to stay with us and would be able to look after the children at, at night. Um, uh, Miranda spent a lot of time in the hospital. I sort of went backwards and forwards a lot more. Um, it, it, yeah, they, they coped very, very well. Um, you know, there was no. They, they, they never became more. They were very good, the girls. They, you know, they never became more needy or more demanding. Um, I think they understood that, you know, that this was the situation we were going through. And they got to come to the hospital and play in the fairy garden, and they started to enjoy that. So, um, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> they, they were good. But I was, we were very lucky with help, um, just because we don't have parents um, who live in, in Sydney. So um, we were lucky to have you know, people that the girls knew and, and loved come up and help us you know, look after them. It seemed that there were some times during the story where you were met with some uncertainty or inconsistency within the medical team, which, from my perspective, is, is obviously an, a natural thing to happen, but must be a bit unsettling. Things such as Will's prognosis or the, the best management for his chylothorax. What was it like for you as a family member to deal with this um, inconsistency? Yeah, it wasn't... Um, <clears throat> there was... I think I said before... You, know, you do get the sense that everyone wants the same outcome, and the outcome is discharging Will from ICU in the hospital and sending him home a happy, healthy boy. So, you know, you know that everyone certainly, you know, sort of that is their one mission. Um, where, where there was a 
a bit of unnecessary nonsense was who was to blame for the chylothorax. Um, you know, the, the, um, the ICU said, well, it clearly happened in surgery, and the surgeon said, well, that's just nonsense. You know, it's obviously happened in ICU. Um, and that's just, that's just, and that was all played out in front of us. You know, each time we spoke to, you know, either of those two parties, they would blame the other. Um, you know, we, we don't really care what caused it. Um, you know, we just kind of want it fixed. Um, <clears throat> so that's, I mean, I assume that's just professional rivalry or, you know, not wanting to and, and accept, you know, how it could have happened. And it's one of those things that, you know, in, from what we understand, no one really knows what causes it in the first place, you know, maybe damage to the thoracic duct or, or something along those lines. And then there was <clears throat> certainly, as Will got weaker and weaker and weaker and, and people seemed to be running out of ideas and the only sort of solution they had was time. We've got to give this more time. But we could see with Will getting weaker and weaker that that, that you know, perhaps time wasn't something he had a hell of a lot of. Um, um, we're obviously not medical experts and um, if there needed to be dramatic intervention, I assume there would have been. But then the ICU unit changed over, the, you know, the, the head of ICU, and I think he, he, he just came and he said, look, Keeping him on the, you know, the, the TPN um, is not working. Um, it's not stopping the chylothorax, and all it's doing was was getting weaker. So let's just throw it out the window and get him back on some formula. Um, and I think almost instantly, and whether that was the catalyst or not, you know, Will started to pick up. Um, you know, and and that's not an inconsistency in treatment. That's just a different, a fresh set of eyes, I think. Um, and uh, you know, he started to pick up, and the chylothorax started to dry up, and. Um, you know, pretty soon he was, you know, off the ventilator and then he was off some of the drugs and then he was off the painkillers and, you know, and, and as somebody sort of said with, you know, with a baby, is once they turn, they turn very, very quickly and, and will turn very, very quickly, um, you know, and I'm not saying it was an inconsistency in the treatment, it was just a different a, a different way of treating, you know, what was in front of them and, you know, maybe we'll, we would have picked up anyway, who knows, but, um, yeah, there, there was a, just a couple of little frustrations like that, but overall, you, you know that everyone was had Will's best interests at heart. Will continued to improve, didn't he, over the next couple of weeks and eventually went home at about six weeks. Yep. Can you tell us how Will is doing now? Um, I know this sounds a little glib, but you to look at Will, you would have no idea what he's been through. Um, there are... Uh, no signs of any physical or cognitive impairment at all. He is a normal, healthy little. Um, you know, he's now almost two, uh, almost two years old. Uh, he is ahead of the curve physically, and um, you know, he's quite a little chatterbox. So he's, um, yeah, he, he's quite startling. And, and the only time you kind of have, it, you know, I mean, you, I think I think of it every day. Um, but you know, it's only when you put him in the bath and you, you get his clobber off and you, you see the scars all over his body that you know you sort of remember. And you know, you can see some strange looks occasionally when we got him down at the pool, um, just because he's not a. He doesn't behave like a baby who's been through anything like that. Um, you know, we, we hesitate to use the word miracle. There are, you know, a lot of incredible medical stories, but um, he is a remarkable little boy. Um, you know, and we are count ourselves just in, incredibly fortunate. Um, you know, the best moment for us. You know, we had a special pediatrician who would look after him, and he'll see a cardiologist for life. And um, you know, we saw her about three or four months ago, and she said, oh, "I don't need to see you anymore." You know, Will is a perfectly healthy boy. You know, no more regular checkups. And, and for that, for us, you know, that was that was a pretty significant moment. Um, you know, there's 
there's no sign of the clot. Seems to have vanished with a, an MRI we did six months after he left hospital. Um, the stroke site seems to have, you know, healed itself or, or been nothing more than, you know, perhaps bruising. Um, so, you know, it's a, it, we're incredibly lucky and, and Will is incredibly lucky. As I said in my introduction, I suspect Will will have very little recollection of, of that time, but that must have left quite an impact on you as a family. How do you look back at that experience? Um, look back at it as only six weeks. You know, it felt like a lot longer at the time, but, you know, Will will live to 100 and it'll only be six weeks of his life. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's, in that way, it was just we went through this short intense period and then look you know my wife and I've grown up very very fortunate lives um you know we haven't experienced a lot of situations like that um you know and in that way it made us appreciate a lot more what a lot of other people go through um it's um taught us a bit about ourselves and how we deal with situations like that and I think we're both quite proud of how, you know how we did deal with it um and you know it also uh, I got back to that point in the ICU where you don't presume to know like you know what other people are going through I, I remember at that time you know going about my normal life whether it was shopping for the girls or whether it was you know getting a cab to work or to the hospital or whatever it is and and hearing a taxi driver piss and moan about you know the government or the roads or something like that and you know wanting me to engage in it and it just sort of teaches you sort of never presume to know what someone else is going through in their lives you know you just you don't know you know, what is happening to people, what's happening to their families and, and all the rest of it. So it's, I won't say it was a good experience to go through, but, you know, certainly a, an experience we, you know, look back on as something that taught us a lot about, you know, ourselves and, you know, us as a, as a family. I'm, like many of my colleagues in, in the industry, have not been in the position that you've been in. And it strikes me as important for us to to benefit from your experience, what advice would you give people in my industry on how we could improve the experience for family members? Um, just, I mean, this, this really feels like nitpicking, but just because we had such a good experience, um, you know, through both hospitals and through the ICU, and we ultimately got the, you know, the best possible outcome. Just a, a couple of things. One is the, and this is more one for hospitals, the standard of um, sort of uh, beds and rooms for people to stay over to be with their children is pretty shabby. You know, and I know these are public hospitals, and, you know, but a lot of money gets put into life-saving machines and things like that. And it's just, it's, you know, I'm sure that there could be things that could make that, a bit more comfortable, particularly for people on very long stays. Um, I, I did. I mentioned this sort of the consistency of the message between the ICU and the surgeons, and, and these are very uncertain, you know, sort of medical events. So there's always going to be disputes, and it just doesn't help when it's played out in front of you. Like you know, it's better to have, you know, perhaps those disputes worked out in the back room, and then a constant message come through the parents. Or, you know, although giving them, you know, the, the full story, I never felt through our entire process that anyone was lying to us, gilding the lily, um, you know, not giving us the, you know, the bare knuckle facts of, you know, this is what we're dealing with and this is how we're going to deal with it. Um, you know, although um, there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of, a lot of terms of drugs and procedures that pour at you. Um, there's not a lot of um, 
you know, sort of like crib sheets, cheap sheets handed out along the way. Like, you know, um, there was one for TGA. Now, this is what it is. Um, but when they give you a new drug, there's a, uh, you've got to take the dogs of faith that that is the right drug to be giving the child. And that's, that's when I reached for Google. You know, it's, it's for what, you know, the names of procedures. You know, when he had a, you know, a CVT, I went and Googled that. Just a little bit of help, you know, because you can't take it in when they're telling you he has a, you know, a, a CVT in the brain and, you know, there's a, an infarct and, a, like, you know, you, you can't take that in. You know, that's when a, you're going to rush off and Google it unless they can give you some uh, document that tells you what you're dealing with. So I, w- I would say you probably need a bit more of that, um, particularly when your mind's going a million miles an hour and you're so worried and you're stressed and you're not taking in the messages they should be giving you. One thing that did worry us a little bit is there does seem to be in the ICU a a different standard of care on weekends. Um, You know, everyone pisses and moans, you hear them about having to do the weekend shifts. Um, And certainly some of the problems we had with Will's care were were on the weekend shifts um, and people spoke quite openly about that, you know, between each other. Um, you know, the intensivists in there, like, you know, make sure you get discharged on a Friday, um, you don't want to be here over this weekend. And to actually say that suggests that there is a problem with, with weekend care. And just one final thing that we did find a bit confronting is you, you go from the ICU with its fantastic 24-hour one-on-one or, you know, one-on-two care and it's, it, everything's on tap and, and then you're out and you're back on the ward. And that's a that's a fantastic moment. You know, you, my God, we're out of ICU. <clears throat> we're through the worst of this. We're on the home straight. But all of a sudden, you're in a, a, a Dickensian-era metal-framed bed. You're, on, you're in a ward with six people. Um, you, you can't find, you know, the, the same level of help. Um, you know, the people have got... There's, there's kids crying and there's people around. And it, that's an adjustment. You know, that is a... I don't know if there's a way of doing that doing that more smoothly um, or it's just a function of, you know, um, funding for hospitals and public and, and private hospitals, you know, but that that was a bit of a, a wrench, uh, particularly because we still then had a four-week-old baby still recovering from heart, store, heart surgery, still heavily dependent on, you know, on, on a lot of drugs, including painkillers, you know, and, and that to, to suddenly feel like, you know, the only interaction you have with a with the doctors as a twice daily round rather than a much more constant care, that that just felt difficult. And I think there could probably be better preparation for, for people who, you know, who are moving off ICU onto a, onto a general ward. Finally, I, I understand that you've been in touch with the Intensive Care Foundation. I was just wondering whether you um, have, would like to explain the role of the Intensive, intensive Care Foundation. Yeah, um, I was approached after I wrote the story about um, uh, Will for the um, for our magazine um, at the Australian, and um, you know, I'd never heard of it before. You know, sort of, I'd heard of a lot of other you know sort of um, uh, charity groups and, and lobby groups, and you know through you know the um, the hospital system. I mean, there's a Humpty um, <clears throat> Dumpty Foundation um, you know sticker on a lot of the machines, and obviously Sydney Children's Hospital is a pretty formidable fundraising machine, but I hadn't heard about you know, the um, Intensive Care Foundation and, and you know, what they talked to me about was actually just raising the profile of the work done by the foundation, but particularly its investment in research. Um, you know, the, the, 
you know, the fact that we need to keep funding investment in research to make, you know, the ICU experience, you know, better and, and to, you know, raise the, you know, raise the standards and, and you know, the, the medical, the treatments that we can do um, in, in ICU. And, you know, ICUs and intensive care is an area that no one is, you know, until you're in an ICU, until a family member's in an ICU, you, you never have any interaction with it, um, you know, and that's why, you know, I, I think it's, such a vital service that you know we should just raise the profile of you know what these what these people and what these units do and how crucial they are to the um, you know to the whole you know medical care system. Clive, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, uh, and to you and your family for for sharing Will's experience. Thank you. That's an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites? Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.